Let's, let's get yeah. rough. Let's get going, man. All right, let's do it. So, welcome to Something to Do, a podcast devoted exclusively to discussion and devotion of two of our favorite bands, Husker Du and The Replacements. Each episode, we'll be nerding out about all aspects of two of the most influential bands in the pantheon of American rock acts. I'm Jude, and this is my co-host, Greg. How are you, Greg? I'm all right. Enjoying this beautiful, uh, actually, as we're recording, today is the last day of spring. I think I saw um, my favorite meteorologist from NBC10, (laughs) uh, Bill Henley. He said, uh, I think, five-something today. starts summer so there you go a celebrated summer yeah cool. oh so this week we'll be discussing husker du's 1983 release everything falls apart released on reflex records so some quick bookkeeping um i want to just thanks as always to everybody who's been listening following along and engaging on our social media accounts just as a friendly reminder um you may be listening to it there we're now officially on itunes which is super awesome um, and other streaming services. Pretty soon we'll be on Spotify. Um, feel free to leave us a review if you'd like. Also, uh, you know, a couple of people had been in touch with us. Um, please, listeners, don't hesitate to reach out to us, whether it's through our social media or through our email. Uh, so we had been contacted by Martin from the band Terry Hoax, um, who shared a version of um, a cover of Dead Set on Destruction that his band had done on a compilation called Closed Casket which was a 1994 tribute to Husker Du. Um, I would definitely say check that out on YouTube. There's some really cool tracks on there. Sick of It All, a favorite, personal favorite of mine, covers Target, Big Drill Car, does Celebrated Summer. Yeah, it's, it's, a, cool, it's a cool comp. I had heard about it a long time ago, and the only song I think I ever had heard until recently was the Big Drill Car cover because they put that on some compilation uh that they have it came out like maybe when they did those reunion shows about a decade ago um but there's also only living witness do a pretty true to the version a, a pretty true to the original uh too far down which is odd because if you've heard only living witness they're they're awesome they're especially yeah. their, their first record uh yeah prone is it prone mode um i'm gonna look it up Prone mortal forms. Prone mortal forms. That's yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> say, that's another tongue twister um, <laughs> from like ninety three or something on Century Media. Yeah, is awesome. Yeah, it really. Uh, but is. it does. They don't. You wouldn't expect them to cover Husker Du. Right. Um, yeah. And same. I mean, sick of it all. I think really did a good job mm-hmm. on that um, and made it sound like a New York hardcore song, kind of. Yeah. And I think, and someone can correct me, that um, that might be, because I, I looked through on Discogs, they had the insert, and that might be the first recorded appearance of Craig Satari on bass. Oh, wow. Because um, I think they had the guy, Rich something, that had the mustache, you know, yeah. on the old picks, mm-hmm. yeah. on the, on the on first seven inch. Yep. seven inch and the first two LPs. And then the picture in the tribute album has Craig and it says it was recorded in the end of 93, which seems like it jives with about when, uh, you know, he would have joined the band. So that's, nice. that's cool too. And then on the, uh, speaking of Terry hoax and thanks again yeah. to Martin for reaching out um, the, their part on the inside 
you know, each band had a half of a page of a CD to put notes and they put, uh, to Bob, Greg, and Grant, please reunite because we need more songs to cover. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, we also, um, we had some uh, corrections from last week. Um, I think we said that UB40 was the band who originally wrote and performed the other version of Red Red Wine, not the one that's uh, performed on The Replacements, Please to Meet Me. Um, but that's actually a Neil Diamond song, right, Craig? Yeah, I was told that. And I think I always mix up The Replacements one's Red Wine, and then theirs is Red Red Wine, right? Yeah. Is that how it is? Right. But um, they, yeah. Yeah. But, but, but the UB40 is a Neil Diamond song, which I, I'm kind of – shocked I didn't know that but there's a lot of like classic stuff like that that I don't know which we'll actually discuss a little bit uh later on in the episode but and then another correction not really necessarily correction but a comment was that never mind I had mentioned that I read somewhere it sounds like the who and I was kind of asking people that are more well-versed in the who than I am and uh, my friend Darren, who I mentioned in the previous episode, said that, no, nah, I don't hear it. It doesn't, <laughs> I don't really hear the Who comparison. And then also Jude pointed out something to me regarding another song on the replacements, Please to Meet Me, and some uh, kind of eerie similarities. Yeah. So my friend, uh, listener of the podcast, my friend Ryan had um pointed out that the song The Ledge on Please to Meet Me sounds eerily similar to I Want to Live by the Ramones um, from their 1987 album, Halfway to Sanity, which was also released on Sire Records. So uh, listeners, I urge you to listen to both The Ledge back to back with I Want to Live by the Ramones and just check it out, like see the comparisons. They definitely start out with that same kind of like it's like almost the same guitar riff. Yeah. But it's weird because they came out the same year, right? They're, they're literally, because I, I think we shared the 33rd anniversary of Please to Meet Me was in like June of 87, or not the 33rd, the, it you know, came out in June of 87. So literally like three months apart. That I Want to Live is a great later era Ramon song too. It is, it is. I mean, I always... I'm a big fan of the Ramones, but I usually tend to reach for, you know, the first few records, but they have some real gems like later on. And that's one of them. The other funny part about that song is it's kind of, I'm not as good about interpreting, but it's sort of like the opposite of the ledge. I know. Like right. The ledge is like, I'm jumping off this building. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And I want to live is I want to live. Right. And I think I looked and it was written by Dee Dee Ramone. Okay. And I forget who else. it wasn't another it might have been the producer. I'll have to look that up later. Huh. But um yeah, it's a great it's a great song and that one was I believe covered by another New York hardcore band uh that has ties to Sick of It All. That was uh, H2O I think did that on their oh, wow. covers album. So huh. it's all connected, man. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So finally I guess something, you know, um, that I wanted to bring up, uh, first off, um, apologize for the delay between episodes. Um, this may shock you, but we're not a professional operation. <laughs> we don't record in a professional studio or anything. So we had some technical issues, um, that caused the delay, but we do hope to 
you know, the plan is to have one of these every week or so. Um, so, and the idea for this podcast is, you know, to have, we want it to feel like it's just, you're listening in on a conversation between two, uh, you know, besties to use the parlance <laughs> of our times, <laughs> because that's what this is. And, you know, a mutual friend of Jude and I, so like we said in the first episode, we played together in a, in a hardcore band called One Up and uh, our dear friend uh, Donnie played guitar and then later on bass and he listened to the the first couple episodes of the show and he said to us he's like you know I love this because it's literally he's like I've heard this podcast before (laughs) in the van when you guys were driving overnight like listening to you know tapes and and talking as the sun's going up and it was just neat to to hear it again it really brought me back yeah and i guess you know my our other friend larry who was like an unofficial fifth member he said you know that we should touch on something else when i talked about naming my youngest son alex and to kind of bring everything again full circle is to show what kind of relationship that jude and i have is when we were in the band and we were on tour in I want to say it was like 2004 yeah and we were on summer tour I was not even with my now wife you know I didn't even know she existed and we this was you know I was in my early 20s and we were at some Mexican restaurant in California and as you know there's tons of amazing like places to get burritos there and uh, Jude, I was out of money and Jude bought me a burrito and sort of joking. I was like, thank you so much. I'm going to name my firstborn son after you. And we, we had a laugh. And then about, <laughs> you know, a year and a half later, found out I was having a kid and that name ended up sticking. My wife had connections to the name as well, but like, you know, that shows, you know, where we're coming from. So we just wanted, we hope that this literally just comes across like, you're just listening to friends Dude. talking. Um, Cause like we said, we're not experts or anything like that. So yeah. shout out to uh, Don and Larry for the kind words as well. So yeah. I guess now, um, unless you have anything else, I think we can get to talking about uh, everything falls apart. Yeah. Sounds good. So some, maybe some general thoughts. Um, so uh, as listeners know, we're going through both the replacements and who's reduced catalog in a non-linear way and doing an album by album breakdown. So, um, you know, a little bit about like, why are we doing this record now? So Greg, did you want to say a little bit about what your background was, your personal background was with the album? So this is, and I was thinking today about how funny it is that I can remember these seemingly pointless details, (laughs) but then I can't remember to like, you know, lock the door in the house (laughs) like but i remember the so in 93 i think rhino put out a cd called everything falls apart and more and it had everything falls apart i think it had the seven inch and had the it had the inner freeland seven inch the statues and like an unreleased song at the time um i think it had do you remember yeah it had do you remember on it from like their first, one of their first recording sessions. So when I was 14, for my 14th birthday, which would have been 95, I, um, a friend of mine 
bought me the CD. That was my second Husker Du release. So I had Candy Apple Gray, yeah. and then I went right to this. <laughs> uh, my friend Rich, he uh, you know ended up playing in a band with my first band with me, and he was in a band called Watery Love that had some records and uh, Clock Cleaner, yeah, Clock Cleaner with also our friend Sharky, and uh, a band called Fully Glazed. Like, look them up; they're cool bands. Yeah. Um, and he got me uh, that CD, and it was the day my dad took me, him, and Pat that you know to my first show. Oh, wow. It was uh, Fugazi. $5 um, band. Yeah, $5 band. It was at the Troc. <laughs> and I remember I was like, I got to look punk. So I actually wore <laughs> a Husker Du. I had a Husker Du Metal Circus shirt because like, awesome. that was the shirt SST had. I'd never heard Metal Circus at that point. Yeah, you and could I just wore like, it. stream it to like check it out. Yeah, and I, I wore it because I'm like, I got to wear something. You know, I got to look punk. I got to right. fit in. <laughs> and I wore that. And, you know, at the time, the truck let you smoke inside. Oh, I forgot about sold that. Sold out man. show. And it was a stunk of smoke. And I was just like, this was awesome. And I remember, <laughs> I don't know how my parents let me do this. I guess they just didn't care or didn't pay attention. I remember it was a school night and I went to bed in those clothes and I woke up and I went to school because I was just like, this punk. is so punk, man. I'm like, <laughs> I'm in for life. And uh, yeah. so that's my memories of that CD. So when I had that, it didn't really, like, that wasn't one that grabbed me at first. Like, now I'm, I love it. Yeah. But I remember being like, this is way different than, you know, don't want to know if you're lonely. Yeah. Um, you know, the songs, some of the songs are 35 seconds long. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think at that point I really knew. I think everything that sounded hardcore, I was just like, oh, this is like minor threat. <laughs> I didn't know what else right. to compare. I was like, this is yeah. like minor thread. It's super fast. So how about you? Yeah. So um, this actually, a copy of this album is one of the few, I guess, like sort of quasi rare records that I own. Um, so I love, obviously love record collecting, but like, I just don't, you probably have more of the mind for it, Greg. I don't have the like kind of discogs brain where I'm like this pressing and that pressing and this much sells for that much. Um, but I wish I knew more. Um, but yeah, it's, I know that, uh siren records in doylestown that we talked about i think yeah. they have still a copy of it on reflex oh, wow. that's awesome um, if you look at their if you look at their discogs off the look i'll look cool. uh but yeah go on sorry nice yeah no so um so uh, a very near and dear friend of mine my friend joe bought me a copy of it an original pressing on reflex yeah so um i guess like whenever i get a gift i always uh uh, deliberately do not look up how much it costs. So I never like bothered to check it out. But um, the gift uh, of the record has always been really uh, precious to me. And I love the album, just like front to back, which we'll be getting into the songs. It's a good one to have on vinyl. The only vinyl I have of it is uh, the one that came with the uh, Savage Young Do box set. Okay, yeah. Um, which we'll definitely be doing probably multiple episodes about that set just to you know for for completest purposes yeah. although we won't so full we won't discuss everything falls apart on that one because we're doing it right now but yeah i think siren had it i don't i can't find it. i was trying to find it um it was like 90 bucks sorry okay. to, sorry no, to spoil and, and right. to me to me that honestly sounded cheap okay uh for what i thought <laughs> that it would be so if anyone is looking, check out their discogs. They might still have it. And uh, 
they do mail order. So go to sirenrecords.com and uh, they have most of their stuff listed and you can get it and support a, a great store. So. Yeah, an awesome record store for sure. So to talk a little bit about the record itself, I think one of the most interesting stories about this album um, is the story of Reflex Records. And a lot of this information um, that we'll be talking about comes from Andrew Erlis's, um book about Husker Du. So um, Reflex Records obviously was a micro label started by Husker Du and their friend Terry Katzman after Twin Tone rejected their first single, um, the Statues Be With Amusement. So the kind of background was that um, uh, the label heads at Twin Tone thought it sounded too much like Public Image Limited. And there were three label heads and they heard the sessions and they couldn't agree on which song they liked the most. And Greg, there was a quote from Our Band Could Be Your Life pertaining to this that you were. Yeah, so it's, you know, Twin Tone rejected them and they were, they were bummed, which I get. We were in a band that <laughs> sent, sent music to... <laughs> Yeah, like you, you send stuff, you you put time into something, you 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 then send it to these labels, and to have them reject you, like you know, you're obviously sending it to them because you want to be a part of the label, and you know, uh, they got rejected by Twin Tone, and they were a little envious of the replacements because they signed a Twin Tone and only played a couple shows and were only you know known locally, like the Huskers already did full tours. I think right. they've been to Canada. They went all over because they did that. I think it was called the children's crusade tour. Made have been like 81 or something. Yeah. So they were like road dogs and they're, you know, they were bummed about not being signed. So they talked about it and, and Bob says, I don't know if it was resentment, but it sure can be a motivator to make you realize that, well, some people get it handed to them and some of us got to work. I don't think it was ever resenting. It was more like, well, that's one way to do it. So we just thought, well, we'll make our own label and make our own scene. So that's what they did with, with Reflex. And, you know, they, I think it shows the big difference between the replacements and who's could do like yeah. the replacements did have everything handed to them. I think if I recall correctly, they, they couldn't even drive to their own shows. None of them had, yeah driver's license paul westerberg still doesn't have a driver's license huh i didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he, he, i looked and tommy it up was was like in middle school not legal yeah tommy it? wasn't even legally he, tommy was you know when they started he was younger than you know my oldest son he was wow. like 12 that's crazy and um whereas the hooskers you know they did the label um they helped out friends bands they networked they did like they really were early practitioners of the whole like hardcore DIY ethic yeah. of, you know, Hey, when, when, when we're in your town, you know, we're going to sleep on naked Ray guns floor, I think, you know, or the effigies or whatever. Right. And then when they come to Minneapolis, we're going to take you guys in, you sleep here, we'll cook you a meal, which is, you know, when we were in a band, that's what we did. Yeah. You know, so many, a lot of bands stayed. I know at your folks house. Yeah. Um, yeah we stayed at super, super yeah. uh, good parents about that. <laughs> yeah. Like, and we stayed at people's houses. Um, and that was, you know, that was a trail really blazed by, you know, bands like the Hooskers and black flag. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so they, they kind of did it out of necessity. And, you know, I think a lot of great bands do that. They're like, you know what, we're just going to do it ourselves. And it ends up, a lot of times it ends up paying off. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, like you said, I mean, their mission with uh, starting Reflex Records was to generate interest and exposure for, for just local talent in the Twin Cities area that they felt was deserving of more exposure. So one sort of maybe um, seems obvious, but one sort of important piece of background context for uh, any younger listeners is that, you know, obviously at this time they couldn't just throw their music on like SoundCloud or Bandcamp or like get it up on Spotify through like a a digital distribution service, right? So having to create their own label was a way to um, get their musics into circulation. One thing that I thought was really cool about Reflex Records was that they used um, the alphabet letters as opposed to numbers to organize the releases. So, so everything falls apart is reflex D because there were three releases before it. So reflex A was the statues with amusement seven inch B and C were uh, two tape comps. Remember tape comps are uh, comps at all our listeners. Um, I guess they still exist, but um, just being exposed to music through, uh, through a, a curated collection of it on a comp. There's not as, I don't think there's as many though, like yeah. as there used to be, you know, I mean, in the in this era, there were, you know, this early '80s era, there were so many, you know, yeah. and and like classic, you know, you had flex your head and SST right. had blasting concept, and I mean, we could you know we could go on, we could do an right. entire episode just about like early <laughs> '80s punk hardcore compilations, and now, you know, I know that label Triple B out of Boston, they do one like America's America's hardcore every couple of years where they'll have they'll showcase bands and it's really cool, but it's definitely like more of a thing in the past because and I, I do wonder if a lot of it's just because of like, you know, the way we consume music is just so different. You yeah. can, someone can make you a compilation on Spotify in 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I remember even like when I was like kind of getting into punk, it was like the, the epitaph had like the punk Ramas and there was like the new red archives one. And there was like some really, just some really awesome comps. So Reflex B was the Barefoot and Pregnant comp, and Reflex C was titled Kitten. So the Barefoot and Pregnant comp um, had all kinds of awesome bands from the area, right? So Loud Fast Rules, who later went on to become Soul Asylum, was on there. Husker Du had Targets and Signals from Above on there. There was Man Size Action, Rifle Sports. Um, the Mats were on there covering Ace of Spades by Motorhead. And there was this one-off supergroup, um, called T- Tulsa Jack that had Bob Mould, Tommy Stinson, Chris Osgood from Suicide Commandos. So I've actually, um, truth told, I've actually never heard the, heard the Barefoot and Pregnant comp. Have you, Greg? No. It sounds I've, like, I've, oh, it sounds awesome. Yeah, I've ne- I've, like I've never heard that replacements uh, cover. I, want, I think the Husker Du versions of those are on either the CD I mentioned earlier I'm almost positive because I think there's two versions of Target on there. Okay, yeah. Um, and or, or if not, they're on. They might be on that box set. But yeah, I've never, I've never heard it. I, I'm gonna say I think the only, the only reflex stuff I've heard is the hat, uh, statues, amusement, and um, everything falls apart. Yeah. So yeah, so with reflex, it was, you know, they it's it started with a, a loan. They took out a two thousand dollar loan from Grant Hart, uh, his mom had a job at the credit union and they, they released the single in January of 1981. 
and it started to get traction. They got, you know, decent reviews and newspapers and fanzines, which, you know, like, like Jude mentioned, there wasn't, you know, I know this sounds like obvious, but there was no social, you know, it's not like somebody right. could share a post on Facebook and say, check off this who's produced seven inch, <laughs> like the way that you had to, you know, get any kind of uh, notice would be from print. So they were getting the reviews and uh, they went on to release material by a lot of their friends bands, um, rifle sport that Jude mentioned. Um, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, Rifle Sport, some of those guys were uh, the veggies. They were considered like the, you know, the Husker Du had their crew of people that would always go see them called yeah. the veggies. Uh, so I think them and Man Sized Action, uh, who are another ref, uh, band on Reflex. Yeah. Uh, Ground Zero, Final Conflict, and um, Articles of Faith. I have actually, I have heard some Articles of Faith yeah. stuff. So. Yeah. So they, they're, the, I think, the only uh, reflex that I've heard. So if any listeners want to point us to, like, you know, essential stuff we should check out, yeah. uh, you know, send us, send us a message. Take us to school. Yeah. We're, we're, like we said, we're not experts. We're, we don't claim to know everything. So, yeah, I'll, I'll totally admit, like, I don't know any of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, a little bit of the context about them starting Reflex Records. So, obviously – um, Twin Tone is around at the same time, and they had rejected the replacement. So Twin Tone begins in 77 in the wake of major label punk explosion, right? So Seymour Stein at this point is now at Sire. He signs the Ramones, Blondie, Television, Talking Heads. Um, but when Twin, St when Twin Tone began, um, it wasn't really taken as like a very serious venture. Um, but then it gradually became more serious, right? So they had, as we talked about earlier, they had label heads. Um, so I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but in an interview with Steve Albini from the Andrew Erlis book um, about Husker Du, he says, Twin Tone didn't start out as a serious label at all, but then they gradually became one into the early 80s and started just farming bands to the majors. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what stuff went to the majors from Twin Tone. I can think of like four, four bands, and I'm sure there's more. So again, people, well, maybe... So we know replacements went mm -hmm. um we know soul asylum went yeah um they went to a and m uh replacements went to sire uh jayhawks had an album on twin tone and then they they were on uh rick rubin's like deaf deaf american or american yeah. recordings i think it was called that's awesome um, jayhawks are great yeah i think they literally got signed because i, I swear i heard it was something like Rick Rubin called someone at Twin Tone and they were playing it in the background and he huh. was like, what is this? I, I could totally be wrong. So yeah. again, if someone knows the real story, but yeah, then uh, Ween did their first album like we talked about on yeah. Twin Tone, although they did, I think, another one on Shimmy Disc. They still ended up on a major. And then I think Babes in Toyland might have had something on Twin huh. Tone. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. But yeah, in the beginning, it was just like a label for local minneapolis you know bands yeah yeah so as stuff like twin tone like starts to kind of take off and becomes like become like a feeder for major labels then we get the explosion like nationwide of micro labels as a reaction against major labels and as a way for just like husker du did with reflex records 
as a way for communities of musicians and bands to come together and uh, showcase local talent and to lend credibility to bands by having a label a label on the record that they were um, putting out. Right. So you get um, obviously Husker Du has Reflex Records, New Alliance from the, the Minutemen start New Alliance. The guys from SST or from Black Flag start SST. Misfits has Plan Nine. DOA has Sudden Death. Alternative Tentacles from the Dead Kennedys. There's obviously Discord Records, Touch and Go Records, Ruthless Records. The guys from the Effigies. There's obviously an entire you know uh, wealth of literature about this covered extensively in the band Michael Azarad's Our Band Could Be Your Life, as well as um, uh, Stephen Blush's American Hardcore. But all these bands start creating their own label, right? Sort of as a middle finger to major labels and to even, you know, smaller labels like uh, Twin Tone that were ultimately feeding into major labels. And there's one quote here from the Andrew Erlis book that I wanted to pull in as it, you know, really kind of explains a lot of this. So he says, quote, um, excuse me, this is Steve Albini. Um, most would know him as um, a very well-known uh, producer and also sort of outspoken voice in the um, world of music. Um, he was also in a number of bands himself, like Big Black and stuff like that, um, Shellac as well. So Albini recalls, quote, reflex was symptomatic of what was happening in a lot of towns at the time. Where there was no indigenous infrastructure for putting out records, the local hero band would start a record label and that label would put out that band's records and all of their friends' band's records. It was a really nice, healthy development. These little labels popping up all over. Their main focus was one band. Once one band's needs were satisfied, other bands could get their records out. So, you know, all across the country, you just start seeing like all of these like little micro labels popping up and Reflex Records was one of them. Yeah, it's crazy. Like when you think about it, that you look at all those labels and everyone had their flagship band, mm -hmm. you know, that started it and then, the other bands kind of took the ball and ran with it. Like, you know, the, the biggest example I can think of is SST black flag, right? right? You know, they start to release their own thing. The first several releases are, you know, like you take the first chunk of the releases and 80% are black flag, but then they slowly started getting other bands like the Hooskers right. um, and kind of taking care of the scene and the documentation of, of that whole era. Yeah. Something that just as we're talking about this and thinking about is, I think it's interesting that Husker Du had a record on at least three of the labels that we just mentioned. They had a record on New Alliance. They obviously started Reflex Records and then they went on to SST before moving to a major. Yeah, they kind of did a little bit of everything because, um, and they, it wasn't even really linear because they did Reflex and then, which I was going to mention, uh, but this is a nice lead in. Uh, they then in April of 82 new Alliance puts out their in a free land seven inch, um, which came out before everything falls apart. Right. So all the while, while they're doing the seven inch for new Alliance, um, they're still doing stuff at, at reflex, right? Jude, they're, they're setting up that whole, right. That whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Just to really state how, homegrown of an operation it was the reflex office was actually just bob 
and Terry's living room, as well as the counter at Orfolk Jokopis, the like popular record store that's talked about a lot in Trouble Boys. Yeah, it, it, that store, I mean, I remember hearing about that just from reading, you know, in the liner notes of Husker Du stuff or, and mm-hmm. then later on replacements. Like, that was apparently, like, that was that was Facebook right, right. back then. Like, you know, they, people would go and uh, one of the owners, I think it was Peter Jesperson, like an owner, he worked there, something. something yeah. And like, he would turn people onto all kinds of bands and they'd play music in there. And it's something that's sadly like missing today. I know there's still record stores. You know, I go to record stores. I'm probably going to, you know, go to one today, but um, it's still like back then it was a whole different, whole different vibe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I could never pronounce uh, I want to say it's Orfolk Jokopus. So like we said, they, they do the in a free land seven inch. This is bringing us, to, you know, cause we're, we're trying to work towards, uh, you know, setting up for everything falls apart. Um, they do in a free land comes out in April 82 on new Alliance. Um, we'll talk more in depth about that one, I guess on the, when we talk on the, on the, uh, Savage Young do, uh, box set. Cause that's on there. Um, so in order to get to, to, in order to record everything falls apart, they travel to, they tour out to Los Angeles, not just travel, they, they tour. So they're playing shows leading up to getting uh, you know, to LA because they're, they're going to record with Spot. Now Spot, we touched on before, he was like the SST in-house producer. Yeah. Like he recorded, you know, Black Flag stuff, Minutemen, Descendants. Um, I think he did Descendants. Uh you know, a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Several Who's Could Do albums for SST. So, and he worked at a studio called Total Access. So, at this point, they had sort of established uh, contact with the SST folks. Um, there's that infamous show with the blue paint, you know, uh, where I think they met Black Flag and they were opened a can of blue paint and were splashing all over the place. Um, and so, they meet the entire crew, though, when they go out there. They meet Greg Ginn, they meet Chuck Dukowski, they meet Rollins, Henry Rollins, Joe Carducci, and Mugger. So that was like the SST crew at that time. Um, and speaking of Descendants, their recording was happening at the same time as they were recording their first full length, the uh, you know undisputable, indisputable or undisputable. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're in or undisputable, depending on what the proper <laughs> is. Uh, first album, Milo Goes to College, um, which is an absolute classic. And in a weird way, that was sort of the direction, if you think about it, that was kind of sort of the direction that Husker Du was going to be taking. And even with a few tracks on this album yeah. where it had that, that 60s influence, where it was clearly aggressive and it was punk, but it had melody because I mean, Milo goes to college is catchy as hell. Yeah. Um, so, um, so they record the album in two days, um, almost all first takes. And there's a quote from Grant where he says something to the effect of in our entire, in our entire catalog, there's probably not five second takes. Um, and you know, you read about that a little bit in the liner notes of, um, 
of everything or um not of everything falls apart uh, of <laughs> zen arcade like yeah when they did that obviously we'll we'll talk about that later so um also to save money because again they're they're you know working on the cheap um they recorded at uh, when they recorded total access, they did the graveyard shift. So they would work like overnight. Uh, they would sleep on the floor of SST. Um, in fact, they say Henry Rollins at this point had just joined black flag within a few months. And he actually offered them space. His bed was like under a desk at the offices and he offered that space to Husker do. Oh, that's, awesome. which is, yeah, it's like a testament to what a, a yeah that I assume what a cool guy, you know, for as complicated as he was in the eighties, like what a cool guy Henry Rollins is. Yeah. I feel um, like that was like a spot special. I, I, I think I heard in an interview with Rollins where he's talking about the recording process of my war and how he talks about, they recorded it overnight at the studio. Um, Cause it was like, it was a cheaper way to do it. You could get in there like when other bands weren't. Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, even when, when we recorded, we stayed at the studio, right? We just it's cheaper to stay there than to go to a hotel, especially if you don't know anybody in the area where you can crash. Yeah. So, you know, they were just trying to be economical. So um, they do that. And then the final edits for the record um, were done at Blackberry way studios, which we mentioned before that's in in Minneapolis. Um, What's interesting about this one now you have the original pressing. So I'd be curious because to me, this recording always sounded so much better than other stuff that Spot did. Yeah. So I was like, is it because, see, as most people know, a lot of the SST stuff, because of rights issues and legal things and all that, it, it hasn't been remastered. Right. But everything falls apart was, and the first time I heard it was on a CD you know, 10 years after it came out, which also kind of blows my mind because at that time it seemed like it was a hundred years old <laughs> right? and it was only 10 years old and um, it sounds good. Like yeah, for, for I know. What it is. So I don't know what, what the is it the Blackberry is. way magic or like what's going on? Like yeah. Like it, it, it's, it's, it's odd. So the layout was done again by uh, grant under his name, uh, fake name graphics with an X. G-R-A-P-H-X. Um, and actually, this one was originally supposed to be their first album on SST. So they had they had talked about doing a record with SST. Um, they sent them Land Speed record. SST turned that down and said, oh, why don't you do this on New Alliance? So they, they did the first pressing on New Alliance. Yeah. Um, the irony being that SST ended up repressing it anyway. Like the version I have is on SST. Right, right. Um, and then, um, they passed on, on, uh, everything falls apart. So that became the first actual full length on reflex. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a compilation. Um, and it was financed from money they made on tour and they took another loan from, <laughs> from Grant's mom's <laughs> credit union. I, I, I wonder, I always wondered, like, I guess they paid it back. Um, it was, you know, his mom. Yeah, she would have lost her job <laughs> for vouchering for, for them, um, and they pressed ten thousand. They oh. did it in two batches of five. So the first pressing was five thousand, and then they did um, a, a second pressing of five thousand. 
So at this point, they're the first non-West Coast band to sign to SST. Yeah, so new ground. Yeah, so they signed Fall of 82. So that's after uh, the In a Free Land 7-inch. And, you know, literally like a few months before everything falls apart. Yeah, so the content of the record is really heavily influenced by SST, especially the damaged era of Black Flag stuff. So a quote from Terry Katzman, RIP, he unfortunately passed away last year. Um, this quote is from the Everything Falls Apart and More liner notes that was released in 1993. He said, quote, what you hold in your hands is a musical document of those times. And in this writer's opinion, one of the greatest punk records ever. Even now, the power and diversities, diversity of these songs rival anything from today's alternative camp. Yeah, which I remember reading that and being like, oh, wow, this is like, this is like real deal stuff. Yeah. And just to touch on something you said about the SST influence, I, I think, you know, some people like Grant would sort of take these like, throw a little shade at Bob and I think he would talk about how he kind of felt that Bob was trying to placate to SST mm. and Greg Ginn by like writing stuff that sounded like that okay like yeah. that had that you know that black like clearly knowing like this is like you know SST sound which right. as you and I both know with their vast catalog and probably only 20% of it being actually listenable. And that 20% <laughs> is like amazing. I know, I know. But there's so much stuff. They don't have a sound. Right. It's a big tent there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of this record, a lot of Everything Falls Apart was written on the road and inspired by the really relentless touring schedule at this time. The lyrical content of the album is less political and a little more personal. So the band was becoming skeptical of the kind of like rules that you had to follow, quote unquote, in like the hardcore punk scene. And I think a lot of that reflects in the songs on the album. Yeah. And I was thinking about something with that too. You know, hardcore punk, it's, it's in my, you know, at this point, it's like part of my DNA. It's introduced me to so many incredible ideas that I wouldn't have learned about that I still, you know, follow and believe into this day, you know, with straight edge and vegetarianism and anti-racism and anti, you know, uh, homophobia and anti-sexism and all this, yeah. like, all yeah. this, like, you know, kind of leftist politics and things like that. But yo, it, it definitely can be really confining and have, uh, this set of rules that if you don't follow them, you're ostracized. Any type Especially, of yeah. growth or, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't dress the part, um, a lot of people will like take you to task. Yeah. And especially like when you're really in it, like they are right. So this is like their lives at this point. It's like they're how they're making their money. It's how they're seeing the world. It's everything. Right. Cause they're not like you get to a point where you get, you get big enough and you, which they did where you right. can transcend where you might lose a few old fans, but you'll gain enough new ones maybe even more. So it, it doesn't really matter because yeah. the, the, the true fans that have been there since the beginning know that you're doing what you want to do because it's just what you want to do. Like you're not, yeah. you're not, you're not doing it to make money or whatever. And really anybody that says they sold out because of like the way they sounded, I almost feel like they never even listened to this record because there's 
there's right. hints of what they were going to become even here. Yeah. Um, so the record sold well. They sold out of the pressings, uh, and it actually got them some overseas attention, which was a big deal, especially back then, because, again, it's pre-social media and internet. Um, And in their April 23rd, 1983 issue, uh, in England, there's the New Musical Express, uh, the NME, and they wrote this for their review. Uh, Husker Du's Everything Falls Apart, Reflex Records, is yet another spot production. This mighty Minnesota unit made a great EP last year called In a Free Land, and are one of these power drill trios who sound like 10 guitars. Everything Falls Apart hangs together on this formidable power and is unbelievably fast and frenzied, not as rhythmically protein as MDC, nor as ingeniously volatile as the Zero Boys, but pretty intoxicating all the same. So I think... um, now would be a good time to actually discuss the, the songs on the album itself. Yeah. Um, which I found, like Jude mentioned, how they do reflex did their cataloging as letters. Um, for this record, they referred to their sides instead of one and two or A and B. They did uh, the black side was side A and the blue side was um, the side B or the second side, um, you know, based off of, I believe, the, the colors used on the Rorschach um, blots yeah. on the album. So I love the album um, art for this too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. And Descendants actually, um, when they did their tour for uh, their latest LP, Hyper Caffeine Spazinate in 2016, their uh, frequent collaborator for art, Chris Sherry, yeah. um, he would do a shirt for every city like to kind of make it like centric central to the um into the city that they were playing so for minneapolis they did and uh everything falls apart uh parody cool it's pretty cool kind of wish i got one because i think they go for a lot of money now <laughs> um so yeah so on to the album so uh yeah. Jude, why don't you start us off the first track is uh from the gut and it's actually a bob mould and greg norton contribution yeah yeah for me this song is just the perfect mix of like both like punk and urgency and the melody that would later become a staple part of their sound so it has those really staccato power chord verse parts the jigga 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 um and then those like riding like strumming melodic kind of chorusy parts i i think the song is like sst records like you mentioned earlier greg how grant would maybe critique Bob's songwriting by saying that he was just kind of pandering to what he thought SST wanted to hear. But I always think of this song as like kind of like SST style punk as like meets like, I don't know what Husker do would later become like kind of like proto alternative rock. Yeah. Cause it's like, it's a short song. Cause I was going to say it's, I mean, it's the perfect song to lead it off with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way it starts with that, like you mentioned the staccato uh, riffing in the beginning and then even here, it has, you know, on those, the bridge or whatever you call it. The core. I mean, it's such a short song. I don't even yeah. know what you call that part, but that, that more open guitar part is yeah. like, yeah, it's, it's, it's Bob traveling to the future, then going to the past and ripping himself <laughs> off. Or, wait, I don't know. How that, so it, would yeah. be, it sounds like he's, he's like ripping himself off in the past. Right. But like his future. 
I'm tired. It's like in Bill and Ted too, when they're like trying to get into the building and they're like, I know what we could do. We'll have the yes. leave the keys for us. Whoa. Yes. That was actually in the first one. We just watched oh, that sorry, last weekend. Um, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like he's showing what to come. He's showing what's going to come later, but like he's already doing it. Like it, it's right. pretty cool. It's yeah. a, it's a cool song. And you know, I think I've mentioned before and I'm, I don't know if it's because we share a name, but I'm always a big champion of Greg Norton because I think that sometimes, you know, we tend to talk about Bob Mould, Grant Hart, like that's who's could do, you know, and and yes, they were the primary songwriters. He was an integral part of the band. Absolutely. His, his bass playing is crucial to their sound. Yeah. His stage presence. um, You know, he had a, a incredible stage presence. You know, he was the most active of, of either of them, you know, jumping around and everything and he also wrote songs and and these the two songs on here that he worked on are both really cool tracks yeah um so in a way i'm kind of like i would i would have loved to see where he would have went on some of the other records if they gave him the platform yeah yeah so a good segue into the next song which is also a bob and greg song so track two is blah 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 um I love in the song how the form follows the content. So how the, the, the interruption of the blah, blah, blah. This is maybe a little bit of a stretch, but it kind of reminds me of uh, the beginning of Black Flags Forever Time, how it's got the like, jun jun, jun jun, right? So it's like, you know, the clock's ticking, like, you know, it's like um, kind of like anxiety inducing, like, you know, in, in this way, they kind of um, have the blah, blah, blahs. I can definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I can, uh, I, I can okay. see it. Glad and, I'm and, not and, totally in left field with that. No, and, and, and this, and we, there's other songs on here too that are kind of the same where it's, you can hear the flag influence. And now I'm thinking this one, I can, I can hear that flag influence for sure. How about you, Greg? This one kind of already shows like what we talked about earlier. The band was getting a bit tired of, of the, you know, the rigid confines of the hardcore scene. So that's like sort of what this is about. Just like, you know, um, I can, I can see your lips move, but all I hear is blah, blah, blah. Um, and you know, Grant, there's a quote for Grant Hart in Maximum Rock and Roll. They were already getting tired of being pigeonholed and labeled. And he said, the only labels I care about are record labels. Like, so they were, they were really already trying to stretch past the, the boundaries of, of hardcore punk, even as early as, as this record. Also, this is like an early song about miscommunication. It seemed like a theme that ran through a bunch of their songs, right? Obviously, there's makes no sense at all. There's I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I was thinking too of um, on Zen Arcade, what's going on inside my head, where it's like I was talking when I should have been listening. Um, yeah, it's good. Good observation too. Yeah. So uh, track three is Punch Drunk. So this sets off a string of three um, pretty blistering fast um, Bob songs that are just straight up punk songs. So the hardcore songs in this record, I think a, a fair band to compare them to, obviously we talked about SST and how they were kind of trying to emulate that sound arguably in some of the content on this record. But I think a fair band to compare them to um, is the Touch and Go band, whose name is spelled, and I always pronounced it like this when I first got into them, Die Cruisen, um, but I think purists would pronounce it Die Kreuzen. So um, I think that uh, uh, Die Kreuzen and or die cruising, depending on how much of a purist you are and Husker do, um, they don't exactly sound alike. The vocals are a lot different. I think that um, 
they were going for more of a metal sound, whereas Husker Du was kind of creating alternative rock in a lot of ways. Um, but they have like both similar amounts of genre bending elements to them, and they're both from the Midwest, right? So Husker Du was obviously from the Twin Cities, um, whereas Die Kreutzen was from Milwaukee. Um, another thing about this song is that I think you can I think you can hear like the SST influence, like we talked about. Um, it's also got a killer guitar solo in this song. Yeah. Um, so, like you said, Bob Bob wrote this one about violence at shows because um, you know, especially in in that era, the early '80s, there were always fights and things going on at, at shows. It's short. It's a straight up hardcore song, but it has that like a killer guitar solo for being like a 30 second long song yeah. and like the whole like kick and punch and kick and punch and kick. Like it, it's, yeah. it's pretty awesome. And um, you know, the, the, the lyrics um, have an interesting line that I remembered noticing even when I was young um, and Bob talks about it. This is from his, uh, his book. He says, uh, punch drunk was commentary on the sometimes mindless violence I saw from the stage, complete with this curious line. Take a look right in the mirror. What are you, a fucking queer? And then he just writes, who, me? Yeah, this is, this, this is a cool, another cool hardcore song that I feel like you know, in more recent time, I've, I've learned to really appreciate um, in, its, in its brevity how great yeah. it is and yeah. how there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. So like you said, uh, the next song is another Bob song, uh, Bricklayer. This one to me, I can hear. So they had a little Boston hardcore connection. They, I, I want to say Bob Grant and Greg sang backups on um, DYS, the song Wolfpack. Mm. Um, and, you know, they also had the connection. They ended up meeting Lou Giordano, who uh did SSDs get it away, which is a classic. Um, And, you know, Lou ended up doing sound for them for the rest of their career as a band. And he produced uh, sugar stuff with, with Bob. But this one has that like DYS SSD kind of feel to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like, it's just a straight up hardcore song. That's great. That's so interesting because they were all, they had their fingers in everything. They were on hard. They were had their fingers in hardcore scenes on two coasts. Yeah, like, and you know, it 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 kind of shows their their appeal. And and I talk to people, and, and I feel like with the replacements, I mean, you'll have some old diehard punkers that love like the first two records and then don't care about anything else. But I feel like Who's Could Do kind of transcended that. And you'll talk to people who are you know from all that like all different kinds of music i mean shoot i think there was the vh1 100 best bands of hard rock and husker du was on there and you see kirk hammett from metallica talk about them oh man so like you know they had a pretty wide pull yeah so what do you think about bricklayer jude i think it's great the boston hardcore connection is particularly interesting because when i hear this song i think about how it's the band that's going to go on to be on sst next yeah yeah I can so still t- hardcore just sort of different flavor yeah and then speaking of hardcore the next one is another bob song so this album is very heavily bob um yeah. afraid of being wrong um another ripping song this one definitely has black flag damaged big time, uh, damage vibes yeah 
Um, I don't really have anything else to add on, on this one. It's a good song. Yeah. Um, how about you? Yeah, about the same. You just, I definitely agree with those, with the damaged five. Yeah. It's, 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 you know, like you said, it's, these are the guys that are going to go on to SST in a couple months. Um, so the next one is, is definitely the outlier. Mm -hmm. I would think, especially at this time, uh, it's a cover of a song by Donovan Mm -hmm. from this 1966 called sun, sunshine Superman. And, uh, this is Grant Hart, his first vocal, uh, on the record. And, you know, at the time, people were surprised that they would include this cover. Um, But if you think about it, even at the height of their hardcore phase, they were always open about being fans of 60s rock and pop and psychedelic rock. And, um, you know, in in our band could be your life, Grant's quote is saying, you know, the whole deal with tearing down the old to make room for the new? Well, music isn't city planning, which I thought was cool because I feel like sometimes people get into punk and they, you know, and I did it to a degree. Like I remember for a couple of years, I, I was like, I don't like, I don't care for Nirvana or Metallica or Guns yeah. N' Roses or anything because you think I'm punk now, I have to like this. And you realize not only do you not have to do that, but a lot of times that stuff was also influenced by punk anyway. Right, right. Um, so I thought that was cool. Um, Grant had some negative memories about the song. He feels like Bob kind of just threw him a bone. Hmm. Uh, like, oh, here, you sing this cover because you're the long-haired hippie in the band. Right. Um, you know, like, we're not going to include any songs you wrote, really. Well, there's one. Uh, but, you know, we're gonna, we'll let you sing this song. Um, it's cool. Although, like I told you before you recorded, I've never heard the original version of this song Gosh, knowingly. Man, so that's so interesting. So I personally love this cover and it helped solidify my love for Husker Du even further. So when I was a kid, we listened to Donovan's Greatest Hits all the time. Like it was just on, the CD was just on repeat at my parents' house. When I heard this coming after Punch Drunk, Bricklayer, Afraid of Being Wrong, three just like blistering hardcore songs, um, I was like, Husker Du, again, is the coolest band because they just hit the entire spectrum all on one record. Yeah, like it's almost like a little palate cleanser. Yeah. Um, like I, I liken it to how the Bad Brains would have these, you know, bunch of fast songs and then like a reggae song. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like it's it's got that kind of that kind of feel and pacing where it's like, you got to get it. You got to have a little break because your ears can even only take so much of just that, you know, you know, that right. whatever that Oompa Loompa type drum beat <laughs> is and stuff. Yeah, it's cool. Um, I'll have to seek out the original. Um, so then we're, we're on to the last track on side um, black, right? Side black. So. Yeah. The yeah. black side, yeah. uh, the first side. And that signals from above another Bob song. It's, uh, I, I was, I found it funny. You mentioned Bill and Ted, uh, <laughs> because the beginning of this, for some reason, the like discordant guitar lead noodling <laughs> reminded me of wild stallions. Like when they do the air guitar and it's just like, <laughs> I could totally see that. I, I never and, thought, uh, um, this one sounds like to me, like it could have been on metal circus, yeah. which was their, you know, the release that came after this, um, cool song. Like I said, a, a sort of a, a hint of what's to come as far as you know, metal circus goes. So, what do yeah. you think about it? I think it's a good song, Greg. If you know anything, or or listeners, is this like an overtly anti hippie song? And like, sub question: Is Bob 
not so subtly throwing some shade at Grant with this one. Just the lyrics that really jump out at me, quote, you're like a relic, you're like a ghost, uh, dirt cheap love is a thing of the past. And then um, uh, you think the whole world is incense, peace, and love. You can't escape from, can't escape from signals from above. You can't escape the signals from above. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I get like a, I don't think, obviously, who's good doesn't say anything like uh, Cro-Mags, but I get a kind of heavy, like, world peace vibe <laughs> from these <laughs> lyrics. Like, yeah. That's, yeah. If someone, if anyone has any insight on that, that would be, that would be great. Yeah. So next um, we have the title track, Everything Falls Apart, a Bob song. What are your thoughts about this one, Greg? Um, this is like, this song, this is the first song on the blue side, the second side. Uh, it's, it's a classic Bob track. Um, like in the, in the way that, you know, it, it sounds like what he ends up being known for. Yeah. Um, it's, I'm going to say this is to me the second song where he really found his like groove, not saying that the other songs are bad, but I mean, where he found his style that he would take for the next, you know, right. Jesus, four decades. Right. right. Um, The first being in a free land. Um, you know, melody was really starting to creep into the songwriting um, at this point. Um, in fact, after this record was released, an interviewer was talking to them and said something like, not in a negative way, but like something about like, oh yeah, you guys would never have a, a hit record. And you know, Hart, Grant Hart was like, well, you know, we always kind of had a pop edge. And Bob Mould said that, you know, he made this proclamation that if we slowed down in a free land a bit, and sent copies to radio, we could have hit big nationally. Um, so Grant theorized that this is the title track and this was the song that Bob was really going to push as like the single, if they did singles off the album, which, you know, back then hardcore bands didn't do that. They didn't right. you know, do an album and have like a lead off single. Um, but then he says, I don't understand why he sabotaged it by using profanity. So then it can't get played yeah. on, on radio. Um, Cause you know, he, he said he could have easily said everything is so messed up, you know, instead of the alternative. Yeah. It's a great, great Bob song. I yeah. don't know if I've ever seen him play it. I don't think I have. I would love to though. So what so, do you think Jude? Yeah. The opening bass. I love the song. The opening bass line of it always reminds me of uh, can't decide off um, my word. Um, oh yeah. Very, very like, yeah. Yeah. Like ascending kind of. Um, another thing that I think about the song is that whatever effect, I don't have that fine tuned of an ear for it, but whatever effect Bob's using over the chorus, it's a flanger, a phaser, something, whatever it is, it became huge because it sounds exactly like the um, effect that's used over the lead for like smells like teen spirit and stuff like that. That like kind of flanging effect was on every single alternative rock album in the 90s. Another thing that stands out to me about this song is that Bob doesn't scream a single word, which I think is funny that it's the one song that is critiqued, that Grant critiques for having him having cursed on, because um, he tones down the aggression in one regard, but then ratches it up in another way. What's also funny is in a couple of years, it wouldn't even matter no. that he used profanity on it, yeah. you know, because they would just you know, huge songs have been hits that where they just edit it out or now it'll be a hit and, I wouldn't even have to edit it out. It'd just be on satellite radio or something. Right. <laughs> um, so um, speaking of Grant, 
the next song is Wheels, and that's his only um, original song on, on the record. And um, I feel like this one's a, a, another indication of what's to come with uh, songs like Diane on Metal Circus that ended up being, you know, Diane was like a minor college radio hit. Yeah. Um, it, it's total, it's a total Grant song. Um, you know, it has that sort of creepy vibe. I know uh, yeah. when we were talking earlier, that's what you'd mentioned, but it's true. It has that, that vibe there. So uh, what do you think about it? Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's, it's a great song. Um, it's obviously got the Sharon Tate line in there. We're always like, just a kind of creepy, awesome song. The other line that stood out to me was, um, uh, could be a cradle, could be a tomb. I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's, it's definitely like his, his style. So up next is uh, another Mould song, Target. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think about that one? Yeah, so um, I don't want to uh, step on your toes, Greg, but you had commented um, before we started recording that this song is about people who seem to be getting jaded on punk music. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, this one's definitely got like an anthemic vibe to it. You know, it has the claps or whatever. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, a, it's like written as like a sing along and, you know, you got to think at this point in 19, well, they wrote it in 82 and recorded it. They were only like, Bob was like 21, 22. So yeah. they were at the age where, you know, when pe- people are already getting jaded, which I think a lot of the first wave people, were already jaded by 1982. The people around the late seventies are like, ah, oh, sure. this is crap. Yeah. So this was kind of their like, um, talk about it. And I know you were saying they, they actually, you, you feel like they kind of earned the, the right to be a little. Frustrated. Up, with, yeah. Frustrated. Yeah. With that like cohort of people in the scene for sure. I mean, they started their own record label. They're touring relentlessly at this point. They're like in communication with people at SST and are kind of being, you know, invited into that inner circle they have like connections to boston hardcore like i feel like if anybody has the cred to kind of be frustrated with people who are just like detached like do nothing scenesters at this moment in time it is absolutely husker do yeah um i definitely agree like it was it was just uh it was it was an uh archetypical archet it's an archetype (laughs) yes uh for 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 what they ended up becoming so um you know then we move on to obnoxious uh it's another bob song yeah um kind of similar subject matter as as target um this one i also get a lot of black flag vibes from yeah big time like this could be like a side a my war track like there's like kind of like us versus the world type like lyrical content to it oh totally totally it's it's Again, like we said already, you can tell these are the guys that are, are, you know, they were gunning to get on SST. They were, they were writing a lot of this, or, or Bob was at least, to, you know, make, make uh, Joe Carducci and Greg Ginn and Chuck Dukowski's ears perk up. And what's particularly funny, too, is because by the time they do get on SST, they kind of shift away from this sound. Yeah, like they were already over it. You know, finally, in, in, uh, in speaking of... Um, you know, a shift in sound. The album ends with "Gravity." It's a Bob song. Uh, it's unlike anything on, on else on on the record, um, and anything really they did before. Uh, I have a quote from the late Terry Katzman. I know we touched on him earlier. Um, you know, he was uh, part of the Reflex crew, and 
Um, I want to say he did sound for Husker Du. Uh, he's the one that recorded the little snippet of the Minneapolis police uh, before uh, kids don't follow yeah. uh, on replacement stink. Um, and yeah, he passed away last year. I believe it was uh, it's a, definitely a bummer. I, I liked seeing, you know, stuff he'd share online and he seemed like a really uh, cool guy. So, you know, um, condolences to, you know, his family and friends. Uh, they happen to be listening. So he says here, I think a key transition into what they could really become away from what they were is the song Gravity. That really propelled them into a new place. And in all sincerity, I think that song is one of the greatest songs they ever wrote. The melodic displays were getting a little bit more complicated. They were stretching out. I think it was a big mistake when they dropped it from their live set later on. Hmm. Um, that, yeah. It yeah. is an awesome song. I think it's so cool that they ended the record to signal where they were headed, right? They could have ended it with a, just a blistering fast punk song. Obviously they were um, tight in that community and were touring a lot in playing a lot of hardcore shows. Um, yeah. I think it's cool that they. they it's a total it. them move. Yep. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's the, that's the album. Yeah. Um, so, you know, normally we would do a Bob and a Grant song, um, but we're actually just going to each pick one from this record because, yeah. you know, it's, there's really only one Grant song that he wrote to choose from. So uh, Jude, what, what would you pick for your uh, highlight track? This is tough. So if I were to, so a um, little bit of a curveball, I actually would pick first Sunshine Superman just because, when I first heard that, it really, again, solidified my love for Husker Du. But um, since that's not a song that they wrote, I'm going to pick the title track, Everything Falls Apart. I think it just captures the energy, the urgency. It just really displays Bob's songwriting. I think it's like super catchy. This, the title track just has everything for me. Yeah, I, I, I thought about throwing a curveball, but I don't want to be a liar. Um, you know, I've thought about being like, I'm going to pick a cool answer, but it's the title track. It's, that's like the one the from this that I always, you know, end up, if I make a mix for somebody with, you know, something from this record, it's that one. Thought about Target, you know, because I think that's a killer song. I even thought about Punch Drunk because that's a, a nice killer track. But yeah, I went with the title, the title song because I think it is one of the earliest showcases of Bob's uh, craft. So, so we'll, uh, like we said, we'll, I believe after the next, uh, album episode we do, we'll start working on, um, the playlist. Um, so that's going to be it for this week. Uh, thanks so much again for listening, everybody. Um, we're looking forward to you joining us on our future explorations of this essential Midwestern punk rock. Um, for episode five, we're actually going to have our first interview where we'll be talking Husker Du with my friend Jeff Dean uh, of the bands All Eyes West, Airstream Futures, The Bomb, Noise by Numbers, and Dead Ending, which features actually Vic Bondi, who was in Articles of Faith, uh, just to name a few. Um, and I literally mean that's just a few because this man has been in probably 100 bands. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Take care, folks. Have a good one. Yeah, anything going on.